You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 118. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Rosalind Lapierre. Rosalind is an environmental historian, ethnobotanist, and indigenous writer. She is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana, a research associate at the National Museum of National History, and uh, is currently a visiting professor of women's studies, environmental studies, and Native American religion at the Harvard Divinity School at Harvard University. She is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet tribe and also identifies as Métis. Rosalind is also on the steering committee for the March for Science and has been involved in the March for Science since the birth of this concept shortly after the Women's March and President Trump's inauguration. The March for Science will be taking place this coming Saturday, April 22nd, Earth Day, and although the main event will be taking place in Washington, D.C., there are hundreds of satellite events happening all around the globe, providing ample opportunity for folks to participate. We are actually launching a new experiment here at the Eyes on Conservation podcast that is connected to the upcoming March for Science. We will be covering the march from a variety of perspectives this coming Saturday. We have seven wide lens correspondents involved in this little experiment, and each of them will be attending a different March for Science event. These correspondents will be capturing audio to use for an upcoming episode of the podcast, as well as video footage for a potential short film. A select few will be streaming live video from the marches directly to our Eyes on Conservation Facebook page. So if you're not able to attend a March for Science event, or if you just want to get a feel for what some of the larger events in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, or San Francisco might look like, stay tuned to our Eyes on Conservation Facebook feed to get live updates. In the meantime, we hope that you will enjoy today's conversation with Rosalind Lapierre, in which we'll explore some of the connections between science, Native American religion, and the environmental movement. My name is Rosalind Lapierre, and I am an associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana. However, this year, I am a visiting professor at the Harvard Divinity School. That's part of a fellowship that is part of the Women's Studies in Religion program. Tell me a little bit about your field of, of study. What specifically about that, that interest of yours, this research interest of yours, you know, brought you from Montana to the Harvard Divinity School? So I have three uh, degrees. My undergraduate degree is in physics. So my initial training as a scholar began with my bachelor's degree when I was very interested in um, the scientific endeavor. I moved away from that um, and got a master's degree in religion. Um, And then I moved away from that and got a PhD in environmental history. But actually all three of those are quite interconnected. And so the research that I do in indigenous communities is trying to address their view 
Um, and I am indigenous, so our view of the natural world. And I believe that our view of the natural world um, is at this intersection of natural science from a Western perspective and also um, religion and religious aspects of how Native Americans view um, the natural world and the supernatural world. So um, I'm really interested really at this, again, this intersection between traditional ecological knowledge and also um, um, religious um, studies and religious history. I love this sort of conceptual idea that there is a lot of crossover between this Western idea of science and the belief system, the, the religious belief systems of indigenous communities. Let's explore this a little bit more. I, I, I mean, how do you see these, these two ideas interacting, you know, within the context of your, you know, your area of study? Um, because, I mean, I, I, I think that, I mean, you say that there is a, a lot of crossover um, and that th this is sort of like a natural merging of these two fields. But I, I think most people would, would look at these two ideas and think of them as, as very different, you know, and conflicting. I think that in indigenous communities, you need to remember that, um, or we need to remember that people have been observing, right, the natural world for millennia. And so they always began with an understanding um, that I would argue is a scientific understanding, right, based on observation, based on experimentation of the environment around them, right, whether they're um, interacting with um, the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom or other parts of the environment, there was an effort to actually observe, experiment, um, understand, dissect, etc. The the natural world. So they always came at the natural world on the one hand from a natural science perspective. On the other hand of that, um, they also had their own cosmology and their own worldview. And unlike our understanding in America, where we have this separation, right, of church and state, that never really occurred in most indigenous communities. They did not separate out um, what we would consider sort of the scientific slash academic understanding of something versus the religious aspect of something. So they always kept those two things integrated. So I'm interested in looking at uh, how that is continues to be reflected in indigenous communities today, but also looking to the past and looking at how people interacted with their environment and understood their environment to be something different than what we would look view it today. You know, if you look at the history of, you know, Western science and Western religion, they are interconnected, right? And I mean, a lot of early, you know, scientific research was was done within the context of a, a certain base level, you know, religious uh, belief system behind that and backing that. So, I mean, I, I think there's definitely is like some similarities between like this Western conception of, of sort of how science and religion interact and that of indigenous communities. Uh, but I mean, one of the other things that, that I just kind of want to touch on is, you know, the differences between different indigenous and, and American Indian cultures, all of those cultures often get grouped together. But, you know, there's so much diversity of, of different cultures. So, I mean, I, 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 guess, I guess I'm wondering, like, what 
specific cultures like you study and and to kind of put that into context what specific cultures are you referencing when you talk about these connections between science and religion right absolutely so there is a wide diversity of uh, one in indigenous community worldwide but definitely uh, native american tribes in the united states or in north america and a lot of times the way tribes were different from each other was based on the environments that they that they came from, um, the environments that they grew out of. And so one of the things I'm interested in is primarily an area called the Northern Great Plains. So the Northern Great Plains is an area of North America that today consists of most of Montana, most of North Dakota, um, the southern part of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. So that sort of middle area of, of North America. And really it, what it is, it's the watershed of the Missouri River. So that kind of whole landscape where um, the water is, is flowing into the Missouri River, which then, of course, flows south. So within that region, even though it's kind of a large, what, what we'd call eco-region, it actually, um, out of that area, grew a diversity of Native people who interacted with the same exact environment in different ways. And they had different types of um, communities and cultures that grew out of that, but they also had different religious beliefs. So, for example, right now I'm teaching a class at the Harvard Divinity School to um, graduate students uh, on the native, it's called nature and native Americans. And it's looking at these differences. And one of the questions I'm, I am asking them is to look at a particular eco region and look at the differences between the people that are there. So for example, in the Northern great plains, I will only name three, but there are several, um, tribal groups that are there. So for example, in that area, we have, um, the Ojibwe, who um, grew out of the Great Lakes um, area, and then through their own their own individual growth as a tribe and kind of this diaspora, they kind of moved out in many different areas of North America. And actually, the Ojibwe are one of the largest tribes um, in in North America. But they are now out in the northern Great Plains. So they began as a tribe that was a Great Lakes tribe so that their um, culture was centered on um, being people that uh, lived in a, uh, a wetter environment, um, who were both people who had villages and were hunter-gatherers, um, and then they move out to the northern Great Plains and be, they become buffalo hunters, right? Um, so they adapted to a new area, but when they moved there, they took the same religion um, that had been developed in the Great Lakes area out onto the Great Plains. Another tribe that had been there for quite some time is the Hadatsa. The Hadatsa live um, on the Missouri River. Um, they are a people who are agricultural people. Um, they subsisted primarily on corn, beans, and squash, and sunflowers. And they were people um, that were settled in place. They also did hunt, but basically their entire subsistence and lifestyle was based on agriculture. 
And again, because of that, they have a different um, religious um, system that grew out of that. Um, and then we have a third tribe, the Blackfeet, who are primarily um, a hunter and gatherer culture that um, their entire lifestyle was around hunting bison. And they had a, a lifestyle where they lived in villages um, half of the year, and then the other half of the year, um, they were nomadic because they were hunting and they were um, gathering out on the plains. And by nomadic, I don't mean um, that they were, you know, kind of willy nilly, just kind of um, following the bison, which is kind of a common stereotype. They were going to places that they had always gone to, places that they had already man um, uh, manipulated for um, use places where um, they changed the landscape so that bison would come to those places, places where they changed the landscape in terms of wild plant use. And they also developed a completely different religious um, and system and a cosmology. So it's very interesting how you can find several different tribes living in the same area um, who have one very different lifestyles but also then very different religious systems that grow out of that place. And part of it, it has to do with the way that they are interacting with nature and the natural world in completely different ways. So that's one of the things that we discuss in the class that I'm teaching right now at Harvard and looking at how people interact with both the natural world as it exists, but also how there are places that are separate, um, places that are sacred, um, that have their own um, basic time and space. And how do people interact with those places as well? So this past year feels like, like a really important milestone, you know, specifically for the tribes of the Northern Great Plains um, because of what happened at Standing Rock. Um, and, and you've done s some writing about, about Standing Rock and, and, and what happened there and what is happening there. I, I mean, I guess I just wonder generally, like, what, what your perspective is on, on the significance of this event. So, yeah, so Standing Rock also, it, it, you know, is smack dab in the middle of the Northern Great Plains along the Missouri River. And, you know, it's a complicated story and it's a complicated situation. It it began as a situation where the tribe was interested in addressing the environmental concerns that they had. And they were interested in having a full EIS, which is an environmental impact statement. And environmental impact statements are usually done by scientists and scholars. And so essentially what the tribe was asking for was they were asking for scientists and scholars to step into this situation and provide them with um, a written um, document, an EIS, but to provide them with data on what they thought the impact was going to be. So on the one hand, they were looking at folks like hydrologists who you know, address water um, quality and water pollution. And on the other hand, they were also um, interested in having people like archaeologists and cultural anthropologists who are interested in um, addressing issues like sacred places, sacred sites, um, and or sites that have um, human remains. And so the tribe started out with 
this call to have an EIS, to have scientific, um, the scientific community come in and, and again, provide them with information, to provide them with data on how they could address their own concerns. Well, that, as you know, as everybody knows, um, it went from asking for an EIS, um, going to court several times, um, losing every single time in court, to there being a large protest there. And the protest, again, was had two, two parts to it. On the one hand, people were protesting for the tribe to be able to collect information, right, to get an EIS or to collect information about the environment, potential environmental impact of this pipeline. On the other half, which is was also would have been addressed in the EIS, the other half of that story was that people were interested in trying to protect an area that the tribe viewed as um, sacred to them, as significant to them. And so because of that, there ended up, again, as everybody knows, like a very large protest that lasted for months on end um, into the middle of winter. And it really wasn't until the new administration um, came in in January that, um, that that changed. But I think one of the things that I tried to address in a few of the commentaries that I wrote was sharing what I know about uh, Native American religion and, again, this intersection, right, between religious understanding of the natural world or religious understanding of the landscape intersecting with um, the Western scientific ideas about the same place, um, the same, you know, natural science. Um, so I tried to address that in a couple of commentaries to, to share with people why understanding religion was at the center of also addressing um, this pipeline protest. And I think that's really important. I spent just just a few days um, at, at Standing Rock covering what was going on for, for our podcast show. And, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me during the few days that I spent there was the Native American people who were there, they would correct people. There were things that a lot of the white folks who were there, um, and there were a lot of them, right? I mean, I think it, at least at the time when I was there, which was, you know, uh, close to sort of, you know, peak level of uh, you know, as far as the numbers of people at, at the protest, there were obviously a lot of Native American people there. But, I mean, it, it felt like the majority of the people were, were white folks who were there to support um, what was going on. Um, and there was a lot of just sort of sharing of knowledge, right? And, like... Numerous times I saw people, and this happened to me a couple of times, like do something that that was, you know, culturally inappropriate. Right. And like immediately I was corrected, you know, but not in in a very sort of friendly way, like a respectful, like I'm sharing this knowledge with you kind of a way. Right. Um, But I mean, that's that wasn't happening for people who weren't physically there. Right. And that wasn't happening in sort of the mainstream media's coverage of what was going on. So I think, you know, what you were doing, I think, is really important. So like sort of presenting that perspective, you know, putting this in the context of the culture and the religion for folks who didn't have the opportunity to to experience that firsthand. Right. And I think 
I think for some people who were at Standing Rock, um, for non-natives, it may have been the first time that they had been in a community or a tribal a tribal area where they had to learn that in tribal communities, there's, again, there's not this separation of church and state, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that native community always, um, the religious system is always infused in whether it's a, you know, something political that's happening or something social that's happening, that religion is always there. It's always part of the community. And I think that that was something that when, especially non-Indians went there, they were learning that as they went along that, oh, okay, this is like, this is, you know, real and it's happening every day. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm one of those folks who was in that situation. And and I feel like I I got a lot of knowledge out of that experience, you know, because I saw that I was able to see that firsthand for the first time. One of the things that I have heard that people learn, non-natives learned, is that, you know, native people don't separate out religion in the sense that, you know, it only exists on Sunday morning, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that happens every day. It's something that happens at sunrise and sunset, um, that people are much more religious. I think Native Americans are much more religious than people expect. Um, I think that people expect it sometimes with other religions in the world. For example, you know, with Islam, uh, people pray, you know, five times a day, right? And that's and every and most people know that, right? It's kind of common common understanding in America, um, or different religious practices in the United States that people have a common understanding of. Native American religious practice is is not a common understanding. So I think that was again um, something that people learned at Standing Rock and people who visited it, and especially like journalists who went there to cover it. Um, thinking they were covering kind of an environmental protest or an environmental movement. And they got there and they were like, oh, wait, what? People are praying all the time. Um, Like, what's going on here? So I think that that was something that I think, I hope, uh, is something that will become part of um, American uh, understanding now, a better understanding uh, of Native American communities you know, to put this in sort of a broader context, the sort of big picture narrative that, that I think a lot of folks have gotten out of what happened at Standing Rock was that it established this much deeper connection between the environmental movement and the indigenous rights movement. I mean, because you're sort of connected in with both of these worlds, I mean, you teach uh, environmental studies and, you know, you also uh, teach about Native American religion. I mean, have you seen like any of the results from this? Did this really deepen this connection between these two movements? You know, I'm not sure when you speak of like movement, the word movement. <laughs> I'm not. Sure. I, I would say communities. I think that there has. I, I think that there has been a better understanding within environmental community about Native American. Uh, communities and and again the role of Native American religion as central in Native American communities in terms of it being like a movement in terms of like a political movement or, uh, or um, a social movement I think that that's a different sorry I'm getting all academic here 
that's a little bit different than the than the communities themselves and the people who are in the communities. So I think that there, yes, there has been a much stronger connection now between the two communities, for sure. But I think that in terms of the political movements, I think there's still kind of parallel movements that have different interests heading in the same direction, but parallel. Right. For sure, there are a lot of people who think of themselves as a part of this environmental community or or, or movement that are now much more well aware of what's going on in this this parallel community. Yes. Did you spend any time at Standing Rock? No, I didn't. No, I was actually here in Cambridge um, during the entire time that people were in camp and I don't want to use the word protest, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> While they were there. <laughs> Did you wish that you like could have the opportunity to get out there? I mean, what, you know, what was sort of the, the thought process there? You know, I've been I, I've been involved in a lot of different um, political activities over the years. And just to let you know how old I am, when I was growing up, my mother, you know, and relatives had us go uh, march with Cesar Chavez um, <laughs> for, for the United uh, Farm Workers Union. So um, being part of kind of political activity and um, political political protest. I've done that for quite some time. So because of that, I didn't have the same calling or the same need that I know that other people did. And in fact, um, one of the commentaries I ended up writing about was that calling, um, which I thought was really very interesting, again, from a religious perspective, I had not thought about it until this happened with Standing Rock, but I ended up writing this commentary about the idea of pilgrimage and going to a pilgrimage pilgrimage site or a pilgrimage place and how Native American slash environmental protests were becoming these places of pilgrimage for young Native Americans, well, and Native Americans of all ages, but for Native Americans to go to, to participate and be part of um, a religious system, a religious practice. And I still think that's very interesting um, that that is occurring and still occurring, that when there are these larger protests that are happening, I was recently... Uh, a month ago at the Native Nations March in Washington, D.C. And that also had a very, um, uh, it had a religious foundation to that particular protest. They set up teepees on the mall and every day they had daily prayer um, and, and nightly prayer at the at those Teepees. They had prayer that was specifically Native American focused, but they also had interfaith um, prayer circles while they were there. And when they actually had, so they were there for a week before the protest happened uh, or the march happened. And when they had the Native Nations march, you know, it began with prayer and it began with religious leaders um, taking the lead um, in that particular march. And I think that that's something very different and unique that is occurring now in um, Native American society that has not um, 
necessarily happened to this level in the past. And again, you asked previously about this kind of relationship between environmental communities and groups and, and Native American community. And I think we're beginning to see this at these various marches, how the environmental community is beginning to become more accepting of Native American religious practice, where they may not have been. So, for example, if an environmental uh, march was beginning with a Christian prayer, right, or a Christian religious leader, environmental communities and environmental groups probably would not welcome that as much as they are welcoming of Native American religious practice. So I think that's just an interesting phenomenon that's happening now. And I think it's something that um, would be interesting for journalists to, you know, explore more um, or even scholars to explore more of, you know, talking to people uh, who are participating in these and finding out, you know, what is their own personal experience and how is this impacting them and impacting their lives. You talked a little bit about this by, by bringing up this, this march that you participated in, in in D.C. recently, but I guess I'm wondering if you can sort of elaborate like on a, on a conceptual level about this connection that seems to exist between what happened at Standing Rock and the broader sort of resistance movement against Donald Trump. There's so many marches, like so many protests going on since Trump's election, and it's sort of coming on the heels of what happened at Standing Rock, which which I think for, for a lot of people who were involved in, in both the environmental community and uh, the indigenous rights community, it really felt like a milestone. And then, you know, to sort of immediately be thrust into the situation where we have to deal with this president who is, you know, sort of a, a opposed on many levels to like a lot of the sort of conceptual goals that both of those communities movements have. So I would say a couple of things. So first of all, um, we need to remember the history of the United States. The United States government has always been in the business of, and I'm giving air quotes here, <laughs> get, getting out of the Indian business. It's stated policy probably for 200 plus years that they do not want to address, they do not want to work with Native American tribes and Native American communities. And we have example after example after example where it doesn't matter who is in government. It doesn't matter if it's Democrats. It doesn't matter if it's Republicans. It doesn't matter who the president is. The stated policy always has been to either be a colonizing factor in indigenous communities' lives or to also try to deal with tribes as little as possible. It's either colonization um, or it, it's neglect. Those are kind of the two extremes that the federal government works on. So because of that, I would argue that yes, we do have a new administration. And yes, it's dramatically different than any administration we've had recently. Perhaps not in the past, but recently. But to what extent will the policy be 
colonization and to what extent will the policy be neglect? We don't quite know yet, but it will be one of between one of those two extremes. So what I'm saying is that from a Native American community perspective, the way Native American community views the United States government is very different than the way an environmental group addresses the United States government or even the way political parties do, because we don't think political party wise the way Americans do. Um, We think about ourselves as being tribal communities that have been here for millennia and a uh, government and a country I'm speaking I'm speaking in generic terms here that that has colonized our land and our landscape. It's hard to look at any in administration um, and, and feel like there's been a time or a person that has been, you know, working on behalf of tribes in the complete way that tribal governments and tribal communities would like that to happen. And shockingly, shockingly, the president that has been the best president for tribes was Nixon, was Richard Nixon. Um, He put in place um, a lot of federal policies that still exist to today that um, benefited um, tribal community, benefited tribal sovereignty, um, strengthened tribal government. And so, it's, again, it's hard to say, you know, who is, who is president, you know, to what extent does that really kind of benefit tribal communities? When it comes down to it, you know, tribal governments and tribal sovereignty still have to deal with the United States government as a government that is interested uh, in their ultimate um, removal. And I'm speaking totally, again, from like a tribal government perspective. Uh They just, tribal governments are just like, okay, who's there? Okay, how do we deal with it? Right, right. Um, And so you got to remember that tribes are colonized, tribal governments are colonized people. Colonized, this is... America is on foreign land, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And America is, um, as a government, is um, dealing with tribes in that relationship, colonizer and colonized. So it's hard to think of it any other way. Right. And it's going to take a lot more than one presidential candidate to have any dramatic impact on that. From a Native American tribal government perspective, who is the Secretary of the Interior is more important than who is president. Because tribes deal with the Secretary of the Interior as the representative of the United States government. And so who that person is, how they're going to implement policy, um, that is more important. Right. And I think, you know, the, the, the larger issue that I think is, is central to this perspective that, that you're expressing is that Native Americans are, are dealing with the United States government and politicians are in power as sovereign nations, right? So, I mean, it's a very different Absolutely. relationship than, like, than, for example, I have right. politicians in power. Right. Oh, yes. Or, or that environmental groups have. Right. 
that's why that's why I say that when you ask the question about kind of the relationship between environmental groups and tribal community, uh, you just have to remember that, yeah, tribes are governments, um, tribes are sovereign governments, tribes have a government to government relationship with the United States and environmental groups are NGOs. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's very different. Uh, so it, on a very basic level or a very foundational level, they have very different relationships with the United States government. And when politicians change in the White House or, or in D.C., you know, that tribes ad- adjust to that. They adapt to that. And, um, you know, there are some tribal people who don't vote. They don't vote in in federal elections or they don't vote in state elections because they feel like um, they don't want to be party to a system that is oppressing them. So to shift topics here, (laughs) how did you I I mean, I kind of want to bring this in and and talk about the March for Science. And, you know, maybe there are some connections uh, uh, between sort of, you know, what what we've been talking about and, and this this upcoming event. Um, but I mean, to, to start off, how did you get involved with, with the March for Science? So the March for Science, as you know, started pretty much, the, I guess, the day of, the day after the Women's March. People were talking on social media about doing something for science. And so within moments, it turned into this discussion of um, that, that there should be a March for Science And so that conversation kind of snowballed, right, on social media. And within a day or two of that occurring, I contacted the folks who were the co-organizers or the co-founders and um, said, hey, I want to help out. I want to volunteer. And um, so we contacted each other, we talked on the phone, and so I became part of the National Steering Committee. So I've been involved since January when uh, the March for Science um, first started, and it really, you know, it started with people just sort of saying, hey, let's do something, because we saw the threat to, um, you know, science as um, an academic uh, endeavor, Right. But also to science as something that is really important in the daily lives of all Americans. One of the things that concerned me, and this is kind of going back to Standing Rock, was the idea that within the first week of the new administration, that the president signed both a executive order to expedite um, environmental impact statements in development so to me, as an environmentalist and environmental studies professor, um, environmental impact statements are extremely important. Um, reports that are important to communities so that communities can help make decisions. And, but they're also something that is where you can see scientists working on the behalf of a community to provide them with information for them to make um meaningful decisions in their own lives. So within the first week, the president signed um, that uh, executive order 
And he also, of course, signed the executive orders to expedite both the Keystone um, pipeline and the Dakota Access pipeline. And in both of those cases, what the president was signing in the executive orders with those is to expedite the creation of those pipelines and also to not um, do any kind of environmental review or to address community concerns where those pipelines were going to be built. So that's one of the main reasons that I was interested in initially volunteering for the March for Science, because I just saw that that first week, what people are saying is an anti-science rate approach within the administration to address public policy issues, but also just to address issues within communities um, and allowing communities to have information to make, you know, choices um, about what's occurring in their community. Of course, since the inauguration in these last, um, it seems like a long time, but how many days is it now? (laughs) Less than 100 days. (laughs) Um, During that time, we've also seen, for example, a potential budget that includes a over 30% cut to the Environmental Protection Agency. And as part of that, what is being cut, again, is the use of science as a tool for communities to be able to have a healthy um, environment within their own communities, but also to be able to make decisions. So that's how, that's how I got first involved, um, my, my concerns um, in terms of being involved um, with the March for Science. And I wonder sort of how that's evolved over the past few months. Specifically, like, I, I sort of wonder, like, if you've been able to sort of inject, like, a, a little bit of your perspective as someone who is, you know, specifically f- focused on this intersection between science and religion. So the March for Science is a, is a day-long event, right? And a movement at this point. So when it first started, obviously, it was an event that people were interested in planning, Um, It snowballed into this huge thing on social media. I think there's over um, in all the various media channels, uh, social media channels that March for Science has it well over a million different um, people are involved um, worldwide. When we set, sent out a call for volunteers, um, we sent, you know, we posted it on social media. Uh, immediately, there was 50,000 people volunteered to be part of the event. Since that time, there is a group of, a large group, actually, of people who have been working um, tirelessly, oh my goodness, to put on this event. Um, There are some people who, especially the co-organizers, the co-founders, you know, they're doing 14-hour days um, organizing this event um, and and, and what will happen after, you know, the movement that has begun. And a lot of people who have been volunteering a lot of time um, to make this a success. And it's kind of amazing behind the scenes to watch um, how this is unfolding and what's occurring. And it's actually, I think, really, um, you know, inspirational. I think it's really, it's, it's very inspiring to watch what is occurring because as you mentioned earlier with the Standing Rock protest that occurred, 
it does feel like there is um, a snowball effect, right, of, of people um, interested in civic engagement to an extent that they weren't before, um, an interest in being involved in the political arena um, that they weren't before, and really people just wanting their voice to be heard in some of these um, actions that are being taken now, especially um, at the public policy level in Washington, D.C. You mentioned that there are plans for, you know, what happens after the March for Science. What are those plans? Maybe we can dig into that just a little bit, just so folks are aware of that this is, you know, more than just one day of action, like you said, that, that this is a growing movement. Um, I mean, what do you and, and, and other folks involved with the March for Science, like, you know, what's sort of the best case outcome? Like, what do you hope will be accomplished through this event and then what comes afterwards? So um, the March for Science has plans to continue on as an organization. And in the last several months, uh, we have written um, the group, I should, you know, a large number of people um, have written, you know, the um, mission statement and principles and goals um, of, of what the march is intending, one, to occur at the event, but also into the future. Um, the March for Science has been working with um, groups worldwide um, to address this concern about science and the threat to science by not just public policy in the United States, but nation states around the world and kind of how to strengthen that and how to address that. And so I think that it will evolve into an NGO that hopefully is an international NGO. This is my, me speaking. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that it does involve, evolve into an NGO that has, um, that becomes a major stakeholder when some of these policies are made about what happens with science, how science is funded, what is happening with data, data collection, um, data archiving, how, how we're looking at science as something that's important to democracy, how we're looking at science as something that is important to human health and human communities. And I think that I think that the organization and especially the leadership within the organization is really kind of ready to step into that role as being an NGO that is um, making an impact. Fantastic. Well, I mean, just as sort of a final note um, to this conversation, how can folks sort of find out more if folks are listening to this and thinking like, yeah, I want to be a part of this growing movement uh, behind the March for Science? What can they do? <laughs> well, first of all, um, go to the March for Science. So there's the March for Science is happening in Washington, D.C., but the March for Science is also happening in over 500 different communities nationwide and worldwide. Even in Antarctica, there's going to be a March for Science wow. Uh, wow. on Saturday. Yes. <laughs> I think there's some scientists and penguins are getting together there. <laughs> but... Um, no, so, so people, I think, can begin by going to an actual march so they can meet people and they can begin to um, create community. 
at, at one of the marches, but then also they can begin to get onto um, the website, which is marchforscience.com, um, or on the social media channels, again, so that they can meet some of the folks who are interested in this uh, and involved in um, what is what what's happening on Saturday, but then also what's going to be happening happening into the future. How are indigenous people or scientists participating in the March for Science? So one of the things that has um, happened in the last uh, month was a group of indigenous scientists, myself included, decided to write a statement uh, that both endorsed and supported the March for Science, but that also um, kind of recognizes that there is indigenous science um, and that indigenous ways of knowing are different than Western science and that Western scientists should always take into account that indigenous science is part of the world that we live in and um, is part of the, you know, knowledge production system that exists in the world today. And so because of that, we spent the last, um, we got together about a month ago, and the four people that got together were um, Robin Kimmerer, Melissa Nelson, uh, Kyle White, and myself. And the four of us are all either environmental scientists, um, environmental studies, or environmental philosophy professors. Um, across the across the United States, and we wrote this statement, and we have been spending the last uh, week uh, asking for other indigenous scientists and uh, tribal community and allies to sign off, um, sign our our statement. And so far, we have um, I think it's over twelve hundred signatures. It's probably more than that at this point. I haven't looked lately. Um, so the actual letter, the, the indigenous science statement, is going to be something that uh, one, um, some, some of the satellite marches are going to be reading it. Um, it's going to pre be presented at the National uh, March for Science. Um, we're hoping uh, that it actually gets read on the stage at the March for Science um, by um, someone. But if not, we're hoping that um, it gets shared among the scientific community. Because I think it is important, kind of what you saw at Standing Rock, where you saw, again, non-natives um, encountering native community and sort of learning um, that there's a different paradigm. The society is different than probably what they expected. I think the same is true when you look at the way that Native American community approaches the natural world and the way they approach science. And again, they always have layered on top of scientific endeavor, they also have their own cosmologies, their own worldview. And that's what makes indigenous science or um, what people say indigenous ways of knowing different, because it does blend Western scientific paradigms with the cosmology and worldview of individual um, Native American or indigenous community. So in our statement, we address that. We write we wrote that, and we're just encouraging um, people who are scientists who work within the Western paradigm to um, recognize and acknowledge that the indigenous um, scientific methodology is also something that they should 
include as part of the way that they think that indigenous communities address scientific endeavor within our community. Thank you for for bringing that up and and for composing that letter. I mean, that sounds fantastic. I mean, that is right up our alley. A lot of the folks who listen to this show, I think, fit within that category of scientists, biologists who, you know, maybe aren't aware of that perspective, but are, I would hope, have an an open enough mind to embrace a concept like that. So that's definitely something that we can help you spread around. I'll I'll definitely include a a, a link to that on our show notes page and encourage folks to check that out. Thank you a lot for sharing that. And I mean, thank you for for sharing your perspective on, on on all these different issues that, that we addressed uh, uh, over the past hour in this conversation, it's been really fantastic to, to chat with you. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing your perspective. Yes, thank you for having me. All right. That was our conversation with Rosalind Lapierre, professor of environmental studies and Native American religion at the University of Montana and visiting professor at the Harvard Divinity School. Rosalind's perspective on the intersection of Western science and Native American religion is not only fascinating, but extremely important for folks of all walks of life to be aware of. There is so much misconception out out there about the belief systems of indigenous communities, and Rosalind is working hard to educate people and overcome these misconceptions. I would strongly encourage you, I would strongly encourage all of our listeners to read and sign Rosalind's letter about recognizing the importance of indigenous science. You can find a link to this letter and lots of additional information about Rosalind's research and writing, as well as the March for Science generally on the show notes page for this episode. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC118. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or just about anywhere podcasts are found. You can also leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes if you really want to help us out and allow new people to discover the show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.